0: I'm Matt Pikin, and we close every week of The Overlook by turning the microphone over to the West Asheville venue, Story Parlor. They're holding down the first audio residency with the show. Here now is Aaron Halligan-Claire, the founder of Story Parlor.
1: I'm Erin Halgen Clare, the founder and artistic director of Story Parlor, a community art space in West Asheville dedicated to celebrating storytelling through all art mediums. <laughs> Today's episode is focused on an upcoming series we have coming to the space called Jazz Hybrid, an evening that celebrates pairings of poetry and jazz. And perhaps at the end of the night, if the spirit allows a collaboration between the musicians and poets, right there up on stage. I had the pleasure of speaking with two of the poets who will be taking to the stage on this May 11th event, Sebastian Matthews and Marie Harris, a mother and son duo, who will chat about their collaboration process, their creative process, and what they have planned for this event. Sebastian is also responsible for curating and producing this event, and so he'll chat a little bit about the inspiration of its origins and what we can expect moving forward into the future. I'd like to welcome Marie Harris and Sebastian Matthews, local poets and mother and son. Thanks Thank for ha-
2: thanks for having us.
1: And so the big theme with this series is underscoring that idea of collaboration, that hybrid piece. Yep. And in our initial conversations when you were painting the picture of what this could look like, you said something very memorable which was this idea that even even though poets seemingly work within this solitary isolation state. There's so much that's being absorbed in their reverence and their observation and their craft that is collaborative in a way. And in kind of putting these pairings together and the whole evening features a handful of pairings yes. of poets of musicians talk a little bit more about you know the inspiration for that approach
2: yeah and I think it's very clear in a town like Asheville it has such an amazing scene so a vibrant and and a diverse scene there are a lot of different ways that people are doing their art together you know they're either you know even if you're working on your own you're, you'll share it with folks you'll go to open mics or give readings like the poetryo you'll be going to workshops or having a workshop or a group or you go to conferences you go to readings. There's so many different ways that, that the writing of poetry and all writing, because I'm also a prose writer, isn't in a vacuum. It's also responding to what you're reading and what you're seeing on TV and in movies and what you're listening to. So I really see um, all art, but writing especially as a collaborative act with among people, but also with, through the, the artist among different media or craft. And so the idea would be, you know, my, having my mom here is awesome, is, you know, in our case, we've been working together as writers since I was really 14 or mm. in my mind that came when it started to really happen. And also the other readers on uh, May 11th are Mildred and Nicole Brown and they're good friends. Uh, we're going to ask a, a mentor and a mentee to come on um, and find different relationships, a husband and a wife or two, up, uh, you know, wife and a wife, two partners Um And then same with the musicians. You have a pair of musicians come in who are connected in some personal way and then try to bring the music and the poetry together, at least side by side. Mm. And maybe at the end of the night, if people are so moved, do some collaborative uh, free jam. Something. I love it. Yeah.
1: I love it. And so talk more about this specific pairing with uh, Marie Harris. How do you guys know each other? And, <laughs> I'm kidding. But yeah. but truly, you know, in what you admire about Marie's writing and how that's influenced your own creativity. And then, Marie, I'm going to kick the same question to you right after that.
2: All right. You, you know, the, the, I'll, I'll start a story and maybe um, Marie can want to say my mom, but uh, I'll say Marie on the show. Um can finish it. But when I was 14, uh, what it most kind of impresses me about her is that she's always been a part of a group of mostly women, but not always women, writers, poets and writers as part of the, what started as the Alice James Collective and became a more personal, private group of writers working out of uh, Brentwood, New Hampshire once a month, once a, once a week during the summer, come together and, and workshop each other's work in such an amazingly gentle and kind way but also fierce and honest it's one of the best workshops i've ever been part of and they let me in at 14 and took me seriously so uh, the, i always will um you know be happy be really excited and and um just feel like there's a generous move on on your part but also on on that group of women i learned a lot Yeah, and they still still meet now on Zoom.
1: That's incredible. And I just want to insert here, for those that don't know, that Marie was a former poet laureate in New Hampshire, and we got to steal her away here in Asheville (laughs) just a couple years ago. So, Marie, same question to you. You know, it's clear your work has had a great influence on Sebastian, your son's writing. You know, how has that been reciprocated in your own craft and approach to writing?
3: Well, in the beginning, um, it was more one way. He was 14. But um, as as our relationship grew and as Sebastian began to write in, in a pretty much full-time serious way, um, the, our collaboration began to grow into a um, mutual critique. I always sent him work that I was working on, and he would give me his opinion. He'd have a, a, a book or some kind of project he was working on. He'd send it to me. And um, I remember once we were on holiday with some, some of my siblings, and Sebastian was there, and he brought a manuscript that he wanted some input on, and so he and I would s- sit aside and do that for a while. My brother overheard us going back and forth and said, I can't believe it. I can't believe how you're talking to each other. It doesn't sound like mother and son. Mm. Which brother like, was this? Do you Basil.
2: Basil, yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: Who, who I collaborated with as, as a uh, songwriter. Yeah. Mm. He was a singer-songwriter, so a lot of that back and forth going on, but I think it started with the skim milk workshop. It was called skim milk, by the way, because the farm that Jean Pedrick owned and where we met used to be a, a dairy farm, and the family who lived there would sell the cream and keep the skim milk for the family.
1: Oh, wow.
3: Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but that was the outgrowth from the Alice James Cooperative. And what was that? where was I going with that? Um, that that the whole process of critiquing one another's work at the same time um, as acknowledging where each person was coming from or starting from, it was just built in hmm. um, to the way I worked and the way Sebastian worked, and so it really was never a question of power or...
1: I think that's unique, though. Mm. You know, that's not the norm. I think, that, mm. you know, thinking about some of my own relationships, it's um, it it changes. You know, there's mm-hmm. a, a boundary crossed, you know, when you're sharing work, especially autobiographical work, which yeah. I know both of you do.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, that's vulnerable. And it's, you know, it's definitely traversing into a different place as far as, like, what you're willing to, to share. But then also,
3: like receive, you know, you know from <laughs> It's hard to keep, uh, you have to keep remembering to keep separate, this is the way it happened or this happened to me with the art and the craft mm. and whether it happened to you or not you've got to be able to um, craft it in such a way that it becomes it, it transcends the experience and becomes something more something that can go out into the world yeah, and other people can relate to
1: and so, Sebastian, has this kind of uh, molded into your approach as you're a writing coach, you're a, a professor, you've, you've been teaching writing and leading workshops for many, many years? You know, how has that upbringing and this kind of first foray into critique, which is one of the more kind of tenuous parts of the writing process, influenced your own approach?
2: I would only um, I'd say I say, I don't think I've ever been a professor, but i um, maybe I say an instructor. instructor I, it feels okay. better. It feels a little less um, something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I think that that workshop taught me very much what um, Marie just said, which was I learned at an early age to separate my emotional response. It was hard, and I wasn't always good at it from the work. and receiving the critique, taking it in, and then using it as much as best you can or as much as you want in the revision process. You know, we always joke. I mean, you guys used to always joke and I kind of took it in, it's like, what would you say, like, you know? So
3: somebody would say, you know, this line could go, or I think we would change this word. And then you'd listen respectfully. And then occasionally you'd say, so I'm listening to somebody talking about Sebastian's work and he's saying, yes, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do, yeah, okay. And I would sometimes say, it's staying the same, it's staying the same way on my copy.
4: <laughs> mm.
2: And then also sometimes you know you don't need to take everybody's feedback you know right. um, and leading workshops now that's really what I try to, I say that there really are and I believe this there are two teams in a workshop there's the team of the self you got to watch out care for yourself and take care of that relationship with with you know your relationship to your work but you got to be good at listening. Mm-hmm and then there's a team of the workshop and the workshop as a group needs to make sure that the person who's up for workshop is taken care of and and created given a good room to to be able to listen and, and receive the information but they also you also can't coddle or you know soft pedal it you have to you right. got to tell the truth right right yeah. Um, so yeah so it's 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 uh, I think you know that I did an MFA program I did a lot of other workshops as a young man and I you know I I think I took to them because of that early experience. Right, and yeah. We did a collaboration together, and this is where I want to segue, of poems and prose pieces around uh, accident that my wife and I were in 12 years ago with my son. And of course, these guys came right away, and they became part of the experience of post-accident recovery. And we started to kind of almost organic, I think organically, work together. Maybe you can talk there at this point.
3: Well, <clears throat> Sebastian, I, I was, of course, there in the emergency room, I mean, in the ICU, as was my husband Charter, and taking notes and, and taking notes in my mind and just being there, and Sebastian began to write about it soon after he got home, and it became this conversation that we were having about his experience of the accident, my experience of the accident, mm-hmm. and then we'll, we'll, talk about, we'll talk about that other piece, The Dear Virgo, Dear Scorpio. But, um, I'll read one or two small poems about this event from my point of view, and um, just to 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 give you a sense of where I was coming from the the the, uh, the series begins with a poem called, "On the Day before Something Happened." On the day before something happened, nothing much happened. August morning on the Parker River Refuge. Shorebirds working the salt pans. Tree swallows staging for the journey south. Harrier hunting low over the marsh. The last osprey of summer. My first least turn. Nothing more happened. And something terrible didn't happen. Until it did. And then I'll skip forward to another short poem that, that uh, continues the story. Months later, I found the woman's name through the newspaper that had carried a paragraph about the accident. On the way across the road to help your family, she told me over the phone, my husband and I passed by the other car, the one that hit them head-on, and we glimpsed the driver slumped over the wheel. He had a long gash on his forehead. Then I saw, and then I knew, his heart had died before, because all there was on his shirt all there was were five drops of blood Like the shroud of Turin, I thought A white shirt that kept a kind of image of those moments
2: Oh yeah, um, I'm going to read the, the, one of the first pieces in, the, in my collection It's called Beginner's Guide to a Head-On Collision And um, it's a bunch of prose pieces and prose p- poems And then poems kind of woven together into a collage or a mosaic and if I choke up at the end of this one, I'm sorry. It's hard not to. This is you know, it, Some of these poems still get me. Mm-hmm. I wrote them and wrote these poems soon. I think I probably wrote them too soon after the accident, but I think that was the way I dealt with it. Um, Beginner's Guide to a Head-On Collision. Whatever you do, don't see it coming. You're too busy doing your thing, driving to point A, point B. Just driving, tunes blasting, smiling at loved ones. When the car drifts into your lane, don't see it. Not at first. It takes a split second for the bullseye to be slipped on before you understand the simple equation of mass and force and, oh, damn, here it comes. Now the hard part's over. No, that's a lie. It gets harder each second from here on out. Ignore the sound of the car engines sizzling like a diner grill. No good letting your mind puzzle that one out. More importantly, why can't you get your feet out from under the dash, chest pressed into the wheel, what to do about that breathe man and keep breathing as they take your family away one after the other alive breathing as they pry you out of your seat like a splinter deep in and keep breathing on the stretcher and in the helicopter don't stop breathing you're doing fine we're almost there
1: wow um thank you both for sharing that um you brought up how uh, perhaps you wrote these things too soon, and that's how you dealt with it. And I'm sure, Marie, there is um, quite a bit of processing within your own as well. And it, it makes me think of um, what Natalie Goldberg calls composting, mm. you know, and letting the experience sift and turn over. And she brings up, you know, Hemingway couldn't write about Paris until he was in Michigan, or maybe it was vice versa. But um I'm just curious how the composting you know process was how the writing aided the healing for both both of you through this Hmm. um incredibly tumultuous time of your lives
2: yeah you know more and more as i write after this book i wrote a book called beyond repair that looks kind of at ptsd and three years four years out from something like this and how it blends into cultural ptsd kind of we're all my feeling is we're all in that state right now um and I've actually come to think that I don't—that some writing doesn't need to be compost, mm. that you need to just write it out of the event. Mm-hmm. It's limited. It has its limitations. But I'm i I've, I've turning to that more and more, and I'm going to probably stop doing it soon because it's kind of too intense. But I think that's what I was doing here without knowing it. Mm. Um, when we talk about these poems that we're going to read next, what happened was I started to try to write. I don't think that poem was the first poem. I, I started trying to write. I wrote one poem when I was still like stoned on the drugs. Called post-op. I wrote it in post-op. Wow! I, I, I think I said and it I've, to you.
3: <clears throat> I've read a yes, and I've written a. I wrote a poem at the time in response to. Maybe we writing. should
2: read those. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I wrote that kind of not even knowing what I was. I even said it to her. I think out loud. Like, would you just write this down because I can't write. Yeah. Um, but I started to try to write one. I'm, I'm a nut sometimes. So I about four months out, I said, okay, I want to write about the moment it happened, second by minute to my hour by day by week to until it, you know up to the point where I am now. Right. And I could not do right, it at right. all. It was a ridiculous idea. But about three days into trying to do it, I started to talk to myself in this strange voice. I was kind of like a mock astrological um, guru who really kind of hated me, like a self-hatred voice. Mm-hmm. And I started to write down that voice into these little mini poems called Dear Virgo, because mm-hmm. I'm a Virgo. Mm-hmm. And they started. They were nasty, and I started writing them one after the other. And we joked after a while, I, um, they started to be a little nicer over time.
3: And then that seemed like such an interesting idea that one could take this experience that I was writing about, say, just to talk about me, that I was writing about, and then look at it. It began to to bring things up in, in my life about being a mother and my feelings about having perhaps not being the best mother. And when I saw Sebastian writing the Dear Virgo poems, I decided I would write um, Dear Scorpio poems and in my case it's a, it's a dialogue between my young 19 20 21 year old mother self talking to me now wow. and, try, and trying to persuade me that perhaps I, uh, I i shouldn't be so regretful and so hard on myself and so that scorpio began to allow me to forgive myself mm-hmm. so the, the both virgo and scorpio poems deepened The poem's about the actual event and its aftermath, at least Mm. in in my mind.
2: I think so, too, yeah.
1: I wish I knew enough about astrology to make some sort of quippy comment about Virgo-Scorpio relationship. (laughs) I I have no idea.
3: (laughs) I just know Virgo-Scorpio. As an
1: Aries, I know that's something I would do. uh,
3: (laughs) As a Scorpio, all I know is that if you read those little things in the newspaper, Uh it basically, every one of them starts, if you made the mistake of getting out of bed this morning, (laughs) Colin, (laughs) <laughs> That's Scorpio's word. The
1: Aries are, can you stop being so damn bossy, please?
2: <laughs> Virgos um, are just like, oh, it sucks to be you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, oh boy. You so we're all doing Astrology self-taught. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do want to um, explore those poems, um, but first want to also just quickly chat about the the musical influence, Good. that's part of the Jazz Hybrid series. So can you talk a little bit more about the pairing of musicians and you have the next three all lined up for the series yeah. and, and who we have coming up for May 11th?
4: Yeah.
2: Well, it's funny. I don't really... It's. I love working with you because I feel like I'm bringing my ideas and thoughts and you're bringing yours back in exchange and you have the space and you're doing all these amazing things already. I didn't really... The few people I wanted to work with the first I couldn't get for the date, and I turned to you, and you said, "Well, these guys were great over another story mixer. Why mm-hmm. don't you ask them?" So I'm actually really excited to work with. Is it M. Hurley and M.
1: Hurley and Linda Wolf. Yeah,
2: and yeah. I've just had a great exchange with them on the on the uh, on email. So that's exciting. And I like that idea. I've certainly one of the ideas of this thing is that the first couple events, we'll do one now, one in the fall, one in the winter, and try to do four a year, mm-hmm. is to eventually get myself out of the mix like I start with it, like the first year is going to be all the folks I want to have. Like I'm not going to read anymore. Mm-hmm. I read this one and I'm done. Mm-hmm. And then by a year from now, I'm going to basically have enough people saying, "Have you thought about having these guys on?" Perfect. And if you thought about, and hopefully musicians come in and say, "I'd love to play with those folks." So my hope is just to kind of have it start moving out of my realm and just be a kind of a kind of like what you do, I think, at you know story parlor. Is that you're just kind of a conduit and trying to um, curate. Right, what is you know you're not like just letting anything come in. You're curating it, but you're allowing community to come together in all these different ways. Right, and that's kind of what I wanted to hear.
1: I love it. Um, so I want to just play a brief instrumental snippet um, from M. Hurley Good. and Linda Shewolf. They sent it's called Beige, Blue, and Gold, and it's just like I said, a, a small um, condensed version. And at the actual event on May 11th, they're going to be adding um, some really poetic lyrics into. Good into this and so here is beige blue and gold
0: Heiken here from The Overlook. I'm asking you, the listener. Yes, you, listening, this very moment. Is The Overlook making a difference in your connection to Asheville? Do you know more about what makes this city tick and where we're struggling? Let me ask, if you had to give up one cup of coffee every month to do your part to keep this show going, would you step up? If you answered yes to any of that, and I really hope you did, please support The Overlook by giving just $5 a month. Your support keeps this show free for anyone to hear. Go to patreon.com slash theoverlookpodcast. Supporters get free tickets to my first live podcasting events, and I have some very cool items that come at higher levels of giving. Your support means the world to me. Go to patreon.com slash theoverlookpodcast. You'll also find a link in all our social channels. Now let's return to Aaron Halligan-Claire and this edition of Story Parlor on The Overlook.
1: Well, I'd love to invite you both to share some more work.
2: Do you want to do that? Um
1: you want to set that up?
2: Yeah, maybe I should read first and yeah. you read second. We uh-huh. mentioned these post-op mm-hmm. poems. Right. And um, this is probably the first thing I wrote in this book. Post-op. Uh, the room is a circle of muted pain, an offshoot of time, a new hour passing. A button to push, the middle finger or red baton of silence, 96, 95, 94, 95. I become a trauma troll, a drama doll, the prince of pudding. You are the queen of everything, for whom I try not to petition, the bearer of truth on a tray, little white cups to deliver what comes next, the next little yeses, the little noes.
3: Simultaneously, um, I'm in a a motel up the road and um, spent each night there after all day at the ICU. And uh, this poem comes pretty much on the heels of what you just heard Sebastian read. It's called Step Down ICU One. (laughs) He calls at 6 a.m. to read a poem he's written in the night on scraps of paper and napkins, whatever came to hand. The words are precise, but his voice is dull. They say the operation's this morning, but I don't believe them. We ring off. Then I have a thought. I call back. When they take you to the OR, that poem's going to get lost. Why don't you read it to me again, slowly, with the line breaks and punctuation, and I'll write it down. Line by line, his poet's voice grows stronger. When he's done, I read it back, risking the suggestion of a word change to make a phrase stronger. Stronger. He resists, but allows, he'll consider it. Read it again. And so for a small part of an hour, pain and paranoia are sent to a corner.
2: I forget, I have no idea, but, you know, it's like I lost so much of that experience because of pain and because of the drugs and, you know, the anesthesia. So I don't believe it a word of it.
1: Well, I love I love what you were saying, too, about kind of letting go of this idea that everything needs to compost, because then you're falling prey to what memory is going to be doing and the collage of how we are going to recollect and what composting will ultimately do to this, like, true thing that happened in the moment that you were responding yeah. to.
2: There's, yeah, the more and more, you know, as a lot of folks, a lot of white folks, especially, have been thinking about... What it actually means to have white privilege and deal with that stuff. And, you know, the writing in tranquility, which is, that I think, that model, like, you know, you have time to compost it, you have room to compost it, you, you know, mm. um, is a privileged place. And they're not always going to be able to have time, energy, focus, or desire to do that. And so I'm a super privileged guy. So mm. the idea of stripping that away a little bit and trying to write out of experience seems to level the field a little bit. Mm. So. I had no choice there, I was just doing whatever, you know. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, that and could be a bunch of bull, but that's what that's my story. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I think also like going back to that idea of art as healing, you know, having this tool available to you that had already been fine-tuned to a degree that you that gave you something
3: to do.
2: That's probably the real thing mm-hmm. right there. Yeah. Right. It's like focus on something.
3: Right. I'm not a big fan of the notion of healing. I think it's that's a term that gets thro- <laughs> thrown around. Um, uh, more lightly than it needs to be I'm not sure that one sometimes ever heals from from certain things and people are too quick I think to say um, let the healing begin hmm. um, to the extent that art can be healing sometimes I think it might be for other people um, rather than the person who's created it because the person who's creating it is continually opening up those wounds in order to create
1: Is there a word you would use instead? No <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: that's a great quote. I, I, thinking about what you said, uh, Bob Dylan, um, you can come, you, you can always come back, but you can't come back all the way. Yeah, yeah I uh, feel like that's the a yeah. good way to put it for me. Yeah. yeah,
1: that's that's such a fascinating comment, Maria. I'm going to be thinking about that for <laughs> a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I wanted to qu- play uh, a little excerpt. You had brought up the Dear Virgo poems and yeah. the response from the, the um, Dear Scorpio. Um, and Sebastian, you recently took part in a project where you contributed auto Audio recordings from the Dear Virgo, poems from A Beginner's Guide to a Head-On Collision for a collaboration with two musicians, Joshua Dumas, who's from, Dumas, who's from Brooklyn, and Two Hands uh, from Oakland. Can you share a little bit more about this project and anything that it either refreshed or reflected back to you about collaboration?
2: Uh, it's, it was amazing. A guy named Alexander, I think his last name was Hogan. I'm sorry. Uh, got in touch with me said, I've read your books, um, Beginner's Guide and Beyond Repair, and I'd love to do this interview with you. And, I, and part of what I do is collab- have you collaborate with folks. Would you be interested? I'm like, sure. He said, well, how about working with two musicians? I said, sure. He said, bring some work. And I had these recordings that I did with uh, talking, um, talking Book, the local mm-hmm. uh, recording studio for um, literature in town, which is amazing, and um, books. And so I thought these are really good, well done recordings. So here, just take these "Dear Virgo" poems, and they—they're other—they're series. So I gave them six of them, and I had no idea what they were going to do. It's not a real—it wasn't a collaboration beyond just here you go. Sure. And they, <laughs> wow, they did amazing things.
1: Well, let's take a listen. This yeah. is uh, this is "Dear Virgo." This is one of the Joshua Dumas um, yeah. pieces.
2: Dear Virgo, I'm getting tired of telling you what to do. Think for yourself for once. All the cliches were true before they lost their hold. This should be good news. You have room to reinvent yourself. Think Houdini, creating a box to escape from, fathoms of chains. As the air drains, your chances go up. Reemerge or try dying. Dear Virgo, It's hard work getting in one's own way, you should know. Etymologically speaking, to be depressed is to be stuck in a rut. A dark groove, unmotivated to rise out. Like waking to find the basement flooded, you dredge and bail all morning, then, hands white flags at your side, climb back up dusty steps and set water on for coffee. Dear Virgo. Fight or flight, the therapist intones. Root, impulse. Cellular, tug. But now, she asks, how often are you really in danger? Admit it, hardly ever. You'd kill to wrap your hands around that jerk's neck who cut you off. But of course, he's not your enemy. Only a stalking horse for something closer. Where are you in your body? Can you feel your feet?
1: was amazing that was uh, joshua dumas um taking audio from um dear virgo poems from the beginner's gu- guide to a head-on collision thank you so much sebastian and marie it was such a pleasure having you here and chatting with you it was
3: a treat thank you thanks sir
1: this episode has been presented by Story Parlor, a multidisciplinary art space in West Asheville dedicated to storytelling and the human experience with a robust calendar of events and classes for the community and by the community. I'm Erin halligan Clare, founder and artistic director at Story Parlor, and you can find out more about who we are and what we have going on by visiting www.storyparloravl.com.